Welcome to Empathy Led, a show about empathetic leaders, organizations, and brands. And for people like you who want to infuse a great dose of empathy into their professional and personal lives. In this episode, I have the immense pleasure to have Todd Bulo, the co-founder of Dual Boot. And he's going to introduce himself, but we're going to talk about what it takes to be an empathetic leader and to build an empathetic organization. Stay tuned. So, great, thanks for having me on. Yeah, my name is Todd Bulo. I'm one of the co-founders of Dual Boot Partners. Uh, two other co-founders, Daniel De La Cruz and Ben Gilman. Uh, we're a software development company, but we don't see success unless a company, we see success as a company growing with us. Okay. So we build great software, but our success is defined on the growth of a business. Okay, good. So I always found that the, the best way to understand someone is to understand their story, their background, where they come from. So what's your story? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I think I've been, uh, I grew up in Alley, New Jersey, in, 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 uh, right outside of New York City. Uh, and I've been a tale of one that's always kind of been the underdog to a degree. Mm. Uh, so now I'm six foot three, 230. When I graduated high school, I was five foot seven, 140. Oh, wow. Uh, I was very shy. Um, I applied to a university called Penn State University. Mm -hmm. uh, the only reason I applied at that time was it was the only one that accepted people writing it out in pen and not typing it. So that's where I ended up going. And I'm thrown into a, a place of 40,000 people. And it's, hey, Todd, you can no longer be shy. Yeah. And so that, just that whole transition really changed my life and perspective going to a school like Penn State because I started realizing hey, I'm really good at connecting people. Mm. Um, I can get along with the athlete to the computer person to the person sitting on the side corner. Mm. And so from there, it you know really just transi transitioned my career into how can I use my network to help serve people. I mm. uh, didn't realize that until I was about uh, probably 42, 43, that that was my gift. Mm. And I think a lot of people with COVID you know, a lot of people were doing introspective, like what's happening, yeah. what's, what am I good at? And I actually ended up hiring a, a life coach, a, a lady yeah. named Dan, uh, Donna McClain. And she brought into light, because I was searching like, what am I doing in my life? What's yeah. my purpose? Yeah. She's like, Todd, you know everyone. You connect everyone. Absolutely. Everyone I talk to says, hey, do you know Todd Bealey? You know him, he's going to connect you. But I never, in making that connection, I never saw the result of the connection. Yeah. I would just know, hey, Junior, you need to know uh, Kristen, you two connect and, and then magic happens. But yeah. I never saw the magic. So I never really understood the purpose mm. until as I, I started, as I was getting older and went through this program with Donna. So, I mean, I guess that's, you know, defining who I am in my process. I'm a connector. I'm a networker. Um, I'm a hand. I like to get people, um, I call it to the starting line of life. Yeah. Uh, there's many people in my life that are already running the race. I like to find the people that haven't run the race. And I really, I, I attribute that back to back in my high school days when I was this five foot seven, 140 pound kid that was too small for the basketball team, too small for any sports, uh, sometimes picked on. Yeah. And so I was, I'm always rooting for the underdog. But now as I've gotten older, it's like, hey, let me, let me use that, the connections, the networks I have to help those people that potentially were in the situations that I was and help them get to that starting line. I love that. I mean, I'm the personal testimony of your ability to connect people. You know, the, I reached out to you right when Griot was starting. You know, I told you about my story. 
uh, and you just open your network and really introduce me to wonderful people and, and thanks to you I make wonderful connections. So yeah, I think your ability to connect people and to connect people to each other is second to none uh, as, as far as I'm concerned. So there is this, you know, inspiring story about being the underdog that I know many, many, many people can relate to. Can you think back in these early days, early months at Penn State about some of the practical steps that you took to really get yourself out of your shell, get yourself out of your comfort zone, to really uh, break out of the, the shell, the shyness that you... Yeah. When I was a freshman, again, I didn't. I played football for a little bit in high school, but freshman year I saw they had tryouts in the paper for the football team, like Penn State, top programs in the country. I was like, hey, I'm going to go try out for the Penn State football team. I'm going to do a tryout as a punter. Um, growing up, I'd always kick the ball in the backyard. I could kick it pretty far. So what did I do? I went to tryouts. There was probably 200 kids at tryouts. And who did they select? Me and another kid to go really? onto the spring football team. It was eye-opening to me. One, completely outside of my comfort zone. Um, the way they did walk-on tryouts, you'd pick up a football and you'd kick it. I could do that. Well, the first practice we had, they had a guy snap me the ball. I've never had someone snap me the ball. The ball came in, about broke my nose. I went to kick it and I totally missed the ball and it ended up hitting this, this, this coach, Joe Paterno, who was pretty famous. Of course. And this other guy, Kerry Collins, who ended up playing in the NFL in the head. And I kind of knew my career might be done at that yeah. point. But that gave me the courage, like, hey, let me try something. So my football career did not last that long. Mm -hmm. I ended up going from there and walking on the baseball team. Okay. Similar story, tryouts, go, go, go throw. I make it through the, the walk-on tryouts into the team. But as with any athlete, you have to train. So by the time I got to the, the actual practice with the team, my arm felt like it was going to fall off because I hadn't thrown in no. two to three years. It didn't go out that, go that well. So what did I do? I was like, I'm not giving up. I'm going to play a sport at this school. So I ended up playing rugby after that. Okay. And from there, we went on to being you know, three-year Final Four team. Huh. The connections and network I made were amazing. Um, so I think I've always been someone that's like persevered. When people tell me no, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. And I think that's driven me all the way through my life. And as an entrepreneur, you hear no often. You can't do this. You won't be this. For me, that drives me. When I hear the word no, it is the best word ever. Yeah. And sometimes to a fault, because like I, you know, yeah. you know, when someone tells me no, I probably should be like, okay, but like, you know, when I hear no, I'm like, well, you said no, but maybe, maybe we should just do this a little yeah. differently or that, or how about if we did this? Yeah. You know, and I think that's really, I think often people hear no, and it's not no, it's just maybe not the right time yes. or the right opportunity. Absolutely. Or maybe you're approaching it incorrectly. So what can I do differently? Like what, okay, they told me no, the same person. What did I do differently? Yes. So it's a learning process. On Absolutely. That I mean, this is one of the things that we talk to our clients quite often about, especially in the sales process, is that like no rarely means no. Yep. Like no means that there is something that you are missing. Maybe the client is scared and worried about the investment they're about to make. Maybe there's a level of uncertainty that you haven't resolved. Maybe the timing isn't right. Maybe the fit isn't right. And I think what happens to us is that we hear no and we take it personal yep. instead of deploying empathy for the person in front of us to really try to understand what is actually going on and to be able to address those concerns. Yeah, and I think, I think that's the challenge is too often um, we don't empathize with people unless we have seen it or been through mm. it. And uh, I'll give you a good example. Now with our company right now, we're growing very rapidly. 
I probably get 2,000 emails a day. And I used to be in the past, like a biz dev, and I'd email and like, well, they're not giving me back in 24 or 48 hours. I can barely get through my emails in a day. And now I have empathy through leaders that, hey, they're probably getting twice that amount of money, those uh, emails. But I wasn't in that situation, mm-hmm. so I didn't have the empathy. It was more like, hey, why are they replying? I'm their best friend. Like, why are they not replying? Yeah. And so that, that's taught me a lot. It also has taught me a lot in the communication. You have to figure out how does that person communicate. Mm. Nowadays, there's so many different methods. So some people are email. Some people are text messages. Some people are Snapchat. You, know, mm-hmm. you got to figure out what is their communication. When, how are they going to respond to you and when and how quickly? Yeah. Yeah. How fast is the company growing right now? So you we're said- 275 people. We launched uh, four years ago. Wow. So we're, we were just named the top 10 fastest growing company in Charlotte, North Carolina by the Charlotte Business Journal. Wow. Uh, so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's growing rapidly. It's exciting. We've created, we've, we've, have such amazing uh, employees. We really have focused on hiring people that are servant leaders. Mm. And a lot of times people are like, well, what do you mean by servant leader? The best example I can say, for example, on the business development side, I want someone to walk into a room and say, how can I help you? Not how can I sell you? And there's a subtle difference between the two. Uh, And people can read if you're trying to sell them versus help them. So you and I met, I introduced you to a few people. I wasn't expecting anything out there. Hopefully there's some point we'll do work together, but hey, this is genuine, this is real, and if it happens, it happens. Yeah. I mean, to your point, I think people can absolutely pick up on that. People can pick up on that subtle difference between, you know, selling to someone and trying to help. And I think the key differentiator, again, is empathy, is when you are in, in selling mode, you are thinking about you, your goals, your aspiration, your quotas, your, your business objectives, but you in helping mode, it immediately puts you in a position to consider what the other person may want, may need, whether or not this is a good fit. And it really puts you in a situation to do what is in their best interest, even if it doesn't align with, with, your, with your business objective. So this kind of fast growth with a company like yours that is so people-centric, how do we, how do we reconcile the speed with which the business is growing and the importance of looking after people and making sure that they are trained properly and that they understand the culture and that they look after the the customers. Yeah, absolutely. So we, from day one almost, we uh, went and hired, um, she calls herself the pitch professor. (laughs) So anyone that joins our, our company, the pitch professor sits down with them to work on their pitch and their messaging and they're onboarding. So we've got yeah. a whole playbook on onboarding and things like that. Because as we grow, it is harder because I want culturally to, to keep going. Of course. And so, so one, we on-ramping, we focus a lot on that. You know, we failed at the beginning. We brought in some people, amazing people. We did not do a good job at onboarding them. Yeah. Uh, we did not set them up for success. Yeah. And so back to lessons learned, like why did this person, why was this person not successful? They had everything that I saw that they needed. What was the problem? Well, we never onboarded. I just thought, hey, what I do is pretty simple. Go connect entrepreneur, they need tech, go ahead and do it. Yeah. But there's much more to the storytelling that happens. The other thing is we've gotten really good at finding the right hires for us. Okay. Um, again, I go back to the servant leaders. Uh, you know, We try to find people that are servant leaders in their communities. Um, we've, we've really hit, in, I, I don't know why, but this Young Life Network, have you ever heard of Young Life? Yes, I have. I didn't realize how strong and powerful this Young Life mm-hmm. Network is, but Young Life in general, is a servant leadership organization, you know, and so they're taking those those processes that, that they've learned 
and now they're in corporate America and it just transcends on that. So um, the other thing is we're very bi-directional, meaning if an employee has an idea, we're willing to incorporate it and, and vice versa um, on that front. So, you know, has there been some challenges with growth? Yeah, yes, there always is. But we try yes. to learn and try to be better every, every, every day I wake up, I try to be better than the last day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think... When you are a company of one or two or even five, it's fairly easy for the brand to live inside the brain of the founders and, and the early employees. But as you experience growth, you understand that you have to create this intangible thing called brand that then serves as the through line, as the spirit that is going to inhabit everything that you do, the way you communicate, the way you do business. And at the core of it is typically a big idea. And it sounds like for you guys, it's this idea of service, being a servant leader, being a service to the community, being in service to the people in your charge. How, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, we're a software company. We build great software. There's no doubt about that. But the differentiator for us is the growth of a business. And how do you grow a business? The software is part of it but how can I use my network to help you grow? So mm. how can I connect you to investors? How can I connect you to a lawyer? How can I connect you to the media people? We have, the people we're hiring have those networks, so we can do that. We don't charge for that, that's just part of our DNA. Yeah. The other thing is we're trying to change the way uh, people are doing networking type of events too. So in the past we would do uh, happy hours, You know, invite 200 people, 30 people would show up. I actually hated happy hours, and one of the main reasons I hated happy hours is it took time away from my family. Mm. From five to seven, I should be with my kids, I should be on the soccer field, I should do, do whatever. Instead, I'm at a happy hour, you know, drinking with you know, whoever, which you know, they're nice people. Yeah, of course. So what we've done is try to flip that model of like, how are you doing networking? Can you be intentional with your networking? So, uh, and it was a lot easier pre-COVID, but pre-COVID we did a, a program with someone called the Charlotte Rescue Mission in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm -hmm. that um, deals with a 120 day program for people with drug and alcohol uh, addictions, but it's a rehabilitation program. And so people are living on this campus. We took 30 people down there, prospects, network influencers, and had them serve lunch from 10.30 to noon. Mm. The cool thing is, right after we were done serving lunch, we went right next door to this place called the Community Matters Cafe. Graduates of the rescue mission can get a job at the Community Cafe uh, to, to learn life skills. We went next door, and we were being served by the people we were serving. Yeah. That model was amazing. One, I introduced people to something that I love, that mm -hmm. I, that I um, try to impact is around drug and alcohol addiction and recovery. Um, but two, you'd be shocked how many people wanted to come to that event. Yeah. We had a waiting list. Yeah. By the second time I did it, I had to tell people like, hey, if you don't get invited the next time, it's okay. Yeah. Like, we still love you. We just want to introduce more and more people. And then they went home, they posted on LinkedIn pictures of them. Hey, Dulboot, it was amazing. We were doing this. And as many happy hours as I ever had, I never saw anyone posting, hey, I went to Old Mac and I was yeah. drinking a beer and, you know, with Junior. Like, but no, hey, I went to the Charlotte Rescue Mission and I was serving with Junior. Isn't this amazing? Yeah. So it was like, a, a, you know, just yeah. a mul the, the, it multiplied on that side. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thinking outside of the box on that networking side. Cool. I mean, I think, again, it speaks to the power of having that brand ethos, that big idea of service. And then the challenge for you and for, the, for, the, for your partners and the ones in charge of the company and the culture is how can we find different ways to bring that idea to life? Yeah. We do it through the way we interact with customers. We do it through the way we interact with our employees. 
We create opportunities for our employees to serve the community. And again, it's that reinforcing idea that the more it gets reinforced, the stronger it gets, the bigger it gets. And I think in, in that example as well is what I think is the next frontier of um, employee engagement and, and corporate responsibility. That it used to be, you will write a big check to the shallow rescue mission to feel good about, you know, and maybe it's not just to feel good, yeah. maybe it's a genuine willingness to help. But I think the new model is how can we take our brand core values and how can we align it with an organization yeah. like Charlotte Rescue Mission and really create an opportunity for real involvement, for real exchange, for real connection that I think is way more powerful in terms of building culture, retention, employee engagement and satisfaction, feeling that they are contributing their talents and their gift to an organization that, that matters, that help the community. Yeah, 100% agree with that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's one thing to write a check. And my wife, actually, Michelle, um, who's an entrepreneur herself, really taught me that. So growing up, I had great parents, um, but a lot, of the, a lot of things we did in the community was writing a check. Yeah. And what I realized is, and she helped me realize this, we can write a check for whatever, $5,000, $10,000. Yes, we can still do that. But what if we can write the check and bring the network mm. behind it? Yeah. And so we've done some pretty amazing programs in the community. We, we helped build uh, over 70 beds at the rescue mission through the network that we had in town. So we knew people at Lowe's, Furniture Row, which is associated with NASCAR. And it was like, okay, we had this small check, but now it, this small check has now become a donation of over yeah. $500,000 worth of stuff. Yeah. to help these organizations. And I think a lot of people don't realize, hey, the size of the check, it's the network that you can bring to make the change yeah. uh, to these organizations. Yeah. You talk about this underdog you know, theme in your life, talking about this um, connection and connector. How, what, what motivated, what motivated this involvement and this level of philanthropy that I know you have, your involvement with the community and what, what, what motivated your sense of responsibility for the people around you, your willingness to put, uh, to allow people to get to the, to the starting line, like you said. So talk to, talk to us about that idea and, and the motivation behind it and how it all started for yeah, you. I think uh, it goes back to my mom. She was a nurse. Okay. She never really talked about what she did. I just knew she was a nurse. But then I would go to the grocery store and somebody would be like, hey, Todd, your mom was amazing today. She did this for me. Yeah. Um, my mom one time went down to the grocery store and brought back three of the, the helpers from the grocery store to come to our party. Oh, wow. Like she did little things that she never asked for it. She just did it. Yeah. And that really had a, a, big, a big meaning on me. Then life events started happening. My brother-in-law passed away from a drug and alcohol addiction. Mm. But what that did is I, I, want, I didn't want anyone to ever have to go through that again, yeah. any family or anything. And that's how I got involved with drugs and alcohol. We had some mental health issues happen in our immediate family. So now I do a lot with mental health. So a lot of mine ends up being on things that I see with my lens. Yeah. Um, you know, even with like, you know, my wife being a woman entrepreneur, I've seen how she's been treated differently. Yeah. So I'm very passionate about that. Um, diversity. Uh, I do a thing where we take uh, NFL players overseas. It's called AFWB. Oh, wow. um, and we do free football camps overseas. And for me, as a, you know, a white American, which most of my friends were white, yeah. this is the first time I was really had true cultural diversity mm -hmm. involved. And I heard the stories. I saw how they were treated. People were treated differently. Yeah. And so I've always, that, 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 those types of life things that I see through, again, the sad thing is I had to see it through my lens. I wish I could have just read it in a book and yeah. been like, I want to make the change. But because of these changes, 
it, it motivates me to make the, the world a better place yeah. for whatever it is, for women entrepreneurs, for diversity, for people struggling with mental health, because I, I know what it feels like. To your point, the empathy, yeah. I can em- empathize with yeah. you. And with our current plan right now with Dual Boot, we deal with mostly entrepreneurs. I can empathize for them. So yeah. when they potentially say something, I'm like, where did that come from? I'm like, wait, now I realize because, hey, you just leveraged your 401k to start this company, or yeah. you're not sure where the revenue is going to come from. Yes. So yes, you're taking things out on me, mm-hmm. but you're really not. You're just taking out the frustrations Close. of everything that's happening. But I can empathize because I've been there. Yeah. And, it's, and that, I think that's one of the hardest things with people when they come and work for us sometimes is they may be coming from a Fortune 500 environment. Yeah. Where I go screw up a Bank of America, Bank of America writes it off, right? Yeah. I go screw up for this entrepreneur, that's that kid, that's that person's, you know, house or their 401k yeah. or their, their loan, right? So, so it, it may, you have to be empathetic to the people that you're working for yeah. in that situation. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, we are trying to figure out as we trying to build an organization whose ethos is empathy is how you do you, how do you actually develop your empathy muscle, and how do you make it not just at an individual level, but at a collective level? And and already in this conversation, you you've brought up two things that I think are important for people to consider if they are trying to go down this route. One is it's easy enough for you to tell your at your company we are servant leaders and we support the community, but to take them and to allow them to move outside of their reality, to expand the boundary of their reality, yeah. to experience other people's reality, allows them to develop that empathy muscle. Because otherwise, the reality as we know it is through our own lens, our beliefs, our own bring, our upbringing, the people that look like us, the people that believe what we believe. So through traveling, again, through yeah. going into a situation where it's not your normal environment, it naturally forces you to realize, one, that reality as you know it is subjective and yeah. that other people have other reference points. Uh, but two, it allows you to really begin to empathize with people with reality that don't look like yours, that don't sound like yours. But because you now understand that reality is subjective, yeah. you put yourself in a position where you are trying to understand their reality and the filters that they use to arrive at decisions. Yep, absolutely. And I have two teenage daughters and sometimes they come home saying things and it's hard for me to empathize, but it's their reality, right? So like, that's not what I saw, but it's what they think they saw, right? So then you have to unwind that, you figure what's going on and and still have empathy. Yeah, I I understand you're feeling that way, but maybe this, you're like, so acknowledging that they feel that way. And I think too often we grew up you couldn't acknowledge that you felt like that way. And I think, you know, some of the challenges you have with mental health now is we never talked about it. And it was embarrassing. And still to that point, I think with my generation and even, you know, a little earlier generation, it's still embarrassing. Like, you don't want to say that you're having a challenge. Like, yeah. if you say you have a challenge, you're, you're demonstrating weakness. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the exciting things that's happening now is I think people are realizing Having a challenge doesn't mean a weakness. Absolutely. It just means it just inspires an opportunity for change. And going back to your lens, like I think that's why it's important for people to get out. Volunteer. Even if you don't like the cause or there's something, you know, go talk to people there. Yeah. You're going to get a different opinion, a different perspective. Mm-hmm. You may or may not, you may not agree with that perspective. Yeah. But you at least can listen to it. Try to understand why they're coming from there. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in, in Allendale, New Jersey. Police officers were our friends. Another of my friend that grew up down here could not stand police officers. And I was like, 
come on, tell me why this is happening. Yeah. He said, let me tell you, Todd, how many times you've been pulled over? I said, I've been pulled over like once for speeding. He said, I've been pulled over a hundred times. Yeah. Are you telling you and I are different? The only difference we know is our skin color. Yeah. And I was like, well, that, that, you know, that is pretty amazing. Like, I can see why there's some frustration yeah. that's happening. Do I agree with it? I don't know, but at least I can understand. I can, can empathize. Understand. I, can em yes. I can empathize. It's the reference point. Once mm -hmm. you understand somebody's reference point, you understand why they believe what they believe and what they think the way they think. You know, and I think as much as we talk about empathy and um, as much as we as human beings have this amazing ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes and to, and to see the world from their perspective, even if their reality doesn't mirror us, it's still a limited power. Yeah. Like we still have to ask the people and talk to them and really understand their reality from their mouth. I think a lot of time, well-intentioned organizations and companies are trying to help a specific demographic, but they do it from what they think is yeah. best for that group of people, as opposed to inviting them to be a part of that process, yeah. to finding solutions together to the problems or the challenges that, um, that plagues them. Yeah. Right. No, and I think, I think the challenge, and this is anything, is you're guilty by association many times, even if you're just trying to understand. Um, and I just, I just, this whole Joe Rogan thing is going on right now yeah. with Neil Young. And I saw him actually, you know, whether you agree or disagree, I thought it was, he did a video that basically said, hey, I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. Just because I interview someone doesn't mean I agree with them. Yeah. And I think in society today, we're like, oh, you're talking to that person? You believe with what they are. Mm. No, maybe I'm just trying to understand. And again, I'm not apologizing for Joe Rogan, yeah, but that's you know you. And I think as a kid, if you was, and I guess it goes back to as a kid, if you hung out with the kids that drank, it was assumed that you drank, yeah. right? And I think that's how we're raised. It's like, no, I just wanted to. Yeah. You know, I was with them or whatever. I didn't drink, but guilty by association. Yeah. And that's some of the things that are happening in life now. A lot of us are guilty by association, yeah. but I think it's important for us to understand why is this happening? Why, why are you doing this? If we're pictured together, it doesn't mean I'm doing it. Yeah. But, yeah, but society jumps to, yeah, you must be doing whatever that is of that yeah. person, or you must believe what that or that of that person is yeah. believes in. Yeah, I mean it, it there's no way around it. It has to be intentional. There has to be an intentional, deliberate choice and effort to understand other people's perspective. I think, especially when you consider the digital world, we live in echo chambers, right? Like the algorithm serves us what we like, what we prefer what, you know, other things that align with our beliefs and our values. So unless we take deliberate, intentional steps to step outside of that reality, everything we are fed and everything we experience is going to be some reinforcing yeah. <laughs> idea or belief about uh, our lives and, and, our, and our own beliefs. Yeah, but the, the hardest thing is by putting yourself out there, you run the risk of opinion. Mm. And that is super, I can tell you many times that I've put myself out there and it would have been easier not to. Yeah. And I, I look back and I'm like, why did I do that? But the change that I wanted ended up happening. Yeah. But it, 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 it was not uh, without the challenges of someone saying, well, why'd you do that? Or you didn't think about this or that. Yeah. And that's the, cha the hardest thing about society right now. Everything's filmed. Everything's you know out there. Once you put it, it's out there forever. Absolutely. And so people can take and slice and dice however you want. So it is hard to put yourself out there. Yeah. But yeah. It, for me, it's been an amazing opportunity. I've met amazing people. 
I've also said some things that I didn't realize offended someone of course. until we had the conversation. And hey, you, what you said offended me. I didn't realize that. Yeah. But now I will, and I'll educate myself so I won't do it again. Yeah. Thank you for letting me know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the natural tendency when somebody brings to your attention that you were offensive in any way is to recoil and to try to defend yourself. Yeah. You know, but I think as well-intentioned as we are, it's inevitable that we are going to be offensive, that we are going to say things that uh, lack the level of sensitivity that people expect of us. And I think most of the time, the people that point it out are people that still want to have a relationship with us. If I don't want to have a relationship with you, then I don't point it out, I just write you off, right? Yeah. But if I point it out, it's a difficult conversation for me to point it out so I think it's an, it's a, it should be an invitation for you to say, hey, if this person points it out, it's because they think there is something here worth saving, and I should just take what they are teaching me and, and learn from it and grow from it and, and apologize if that's what needs to happen in the, in the instant. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's, it's super important, you know, especially as we are entering um, Black History Month, you know, to really have that level of, empathy and willingness to listen to people's story and to uh, listen even when we don't agree, to listen even when we don't share those beliefs because that's where the growth happens. Yep. Um, so to bring us back a little bit more into something that is maybe a little bit more practical and tactical, your company develops false software for other companies yep. that have users and users that are different for yours, right? So. It requires a great deal of empathy for you to be able to build software, one, that works for the entrepreneur and the challenges and the goals, but that works for the end users who's ultimately their customers and not yours directly. Right. How do you guys as a company manage that process of making sure that you develop software that reflects that level of understanding? Yeah, so we hire people that have been through the process before. Okay. I mean, they, they, they're empathetic. They've seen, they've seen it through the lens. They know what it's like to take a product to market. They've done it before. Yeah. And I think that's our secret sauce. Yeah. And then if there's anyone that may be a little less experienced, they're, they're partnered with the people that have done it before so they can provide that empathy, that knowledge, that training. And that, yeah. I mean, I think that's, for us, we have um, something called product directors that are basically the quarterbacks of the whole thing. And they've seen it. They know how to get products to market. They know how to get product fit. They know what what corners to cut to get product out there, so they and they've lived it and done it, so they're they're really good at that yeah. uh, and creating the empathy all the way up the chain. Plus, you know, experience helps you know, anything. So yeah, so uh, I think we we're almost at the end of our time together here, and I think a good place for us to close is maybe projecting ourselves a little bit in the future. Help us understand uh, what you see in the future of Dual Boat in terms of what you guys do and the contribution that you want to make in the world and what you want your contribution and legacy. I don't know if it's a word that you use, but legacy to be. How do you want to be remembered, both as an individual but as, as a business leader, as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I think for me personally, I just want to be known as the person that someone can go to to get help me get to that starting line or help this person get like get get to run the race. If yeah. we can do that, it'll solve a lot of things. Yeah. Um, so I personally, that's that's a big catalyst for me is helping yeah. people get to that starting line. Um, that can be you know in side things with mental health and, and drug alcohol addiction, but a lot of that results like coming out of mental health or drug and alcohol. I need help getting to that. Help yeah. me start the race. Yeah. Help and so that's me personally. 
Dual Boot, we have a, 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 sim, a similar pattern. We like to help people launch their ideas, their visions, and bring it to market and, feel out, and quickly figure out, is this going to be a success or a failure yeah. as we grow? So it's a similar thing like, hey, we can help you execute. We can get you the network, connectivity. Now you can run the race. And hopefully that race ends up being a unicorn technology company or a unicorn technology that's changing the world. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And thank you personally for helping me get to the starting lineup. You were one of the first people I called when we launched Grio, and your advice and your ability to connect me with the right people has been tremendous um, to the success we've experienced so far. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. Thank you for having All me. Right. Thank, thank you. you.